This episode of Undistracted is brought to you by our sponsor, Chambord, an all-natural black raspberry liqueur produced in the Loire Valley of France. I don't know about you all, but this holiday season feels extra busy with the return of holiday parties and gatherings. I've barely had time to shop for gifts for my friends and family, but Chambord is the perfect addition to anyone's home bar. I know several friends who would love something like this as a gift. You can get it delivered to your house or theirs with Drizzly, and Chambord and Drizzly are offering undistracted listeners a discount on delivery. To redeem, visit drizzly.com and use code GIFTSHAMBORD, that's G-I-F-T-C-H-A-M-B-O-R-D, at checkout. Remember, please drink responsibly. This offer is valid December 16th through March 15th. Void where prohibited. Available to new users only. Chambord Black Raspberry Liqueur, 16.5 ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Chambord is a registered trademark. Copyright 2021. Hey there, it's Rebecca Carroll. I'm a cultural critic and editor-at-large at The Meteor, and I'm so happy to be here filling in for Brittany this week. She's away on an important family matter, and she asked me to step in to present a really fantastic conversation she recently had. Last Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard the oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. It's the Mississippi case the right wing hopes will overturn Roe v. Wade, and the court, with its new ultra-conservative majority, appears likely to do just that. The stakes could never be higher. If Roe falls, abortion could quickly become outlawed in half of all states. It's a really scary time, and in all the words we hear about the situation, trigger laws, shadow dockets, filibusters, What can get lost is that these are real people's lives we're talking about. Women's lives, black and brown lives, queer lives. So today, we're gonna hear from two brilliant storytellers who have made sure that we never lose sight of the people behind the politics. Gloria Steinem is a journalist and activist who's been campaigning for reproductive freedom for more than half a century. In 1972, she and 52 other women published an open letter in Ms. Magazine titled, We Have Had Abortions. She later co-founded the campaign group's Voters for Choice and Choice USA, and at 87, she continues to do the work. And Renee Bracey Sherman is a reproductive justice activist who's known as the Beyonce of abortion storytelling. She's the founder of the organization We Testify, which is dedicated to the leadership of people of color, queer folks, and young people who have had abortions. And she led the rally on the steps of the Supreme Court last week. Brittany sat down with them just a couple of days after that. Wow. I mean, this is the privilege of a lifetime. I'm so glad to be talking to you all. I wish it were under better circumstances, though. Absolutely. Right. Gloria, let me start with you. Where were you last Wednesday when these oral arguments are coming out? And and what stood out to you from those arguments? Well, I was, you know, here in my house in New York, you know, where I've been enclosed for some time. And really... In recent times, I haven't been able to have that much faith in the Supreme Court. I mean, certainly more when Ruth Ginsburg was there. 
So part of me was super concerned about what was going on. And part of me was saying, okay, we're going to do what we're going to do anyway, no matter what the Supreme Court says. You know, I was kind of going back and forth between those two poles. So you are at home listening closely. Renee, you are outside in front of the Supreme Court in D.C., where I live. You led the abortion is essential rally with thousands of other people. Put us in that place. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, the rally, the feeling was electric. It was just beautiful to hear so many people who've had abortions sharing our stories, really speaking out. And my voice is a little raspy left over from chanting so much at the rally, both in love and joy, but also we had to chant really loudly because our opposition was was very loud. They were very violent. They came up very mm. close to us and were saying very horrific misogynistic, racist, and transphobic things as we were speaking louder, right? Because it's not only are they not just satisfied with trying to ban abortion, but they are actually actively trying to silence us for speaking out and sharing our stories. Absolutely. And I want to talk about what we do now, but first I want to double click on this theme of storytelling. Gloria, it's 1972, almost 50 years ago exactly, And you and 52 other women published that now famous open letter in the first ever issue of Ms. Magazine titled, We Have Had Abortions. Put us back in that place. Can you tell me a little bit about the choice to write that manifesto? A lot of us doing that manifesto had probably already learned in our lives that telling our stories was the most powerful thing we could do. You know, there's the saying of tell me a fact and I'll forget, tell me a story and I'll always remember. Mm -hmm. It also made into a coherent group people who might have felt isolated before. I mean, there's nothing more important as a starter than being honest about our stories, telling our stories and sharing it with other people. What was in the magazine was an outgrowth of that because obviously we couldn't print everybody's stories, but we could at least offer to print everyone's names, which of course was brave of them to do at that point because it was still illegal. And we were inspired by Simone de Beauvoir who had uh, done this in France and inspired a whole, you know, hundreds if not thousands of women to sign. Sure. And so the context of this, like you said, is incredibly dangerous. Tell us a little bit more about what the abortion landscape was in the moment that you were responding to it with this with this powerful open letter. At that point, it varied from state to state, but it was mostly illegal. And the names of doctors who would do this safely were passed around like very precious secrets. And we helped hmm. each other to find transportation and safety and accompany each other. You know, I mean, it's so crazy when you think about it, because actually our bodies and controlling our our own bodies, male and female, is the basis of democracy. If we're missing one thing, it's the rock bottom statement. If we don't have power to decide the fate of our own bodies, there is no democracy. That is the rock bottom statement. So this article in Ms. Magazine, it certainly creates a storm of controversy, but it also creates a great deal of awareness that helps put on pressure for those folks in those marble buildings. And the next year, the court rules on Roe versus Wade and makes the right to access an abortion legal. 
And then later, you write about your own abortion in England in 1957 when you were just 22 years old. You dedicated your book, My Life on the Road, to Dr. John Sharp of London, one of those secret names that was written on the piece of paper passed around, who helped you obtain that abortion. It's so powerful because you're putting yourself in the middle of that story. Well, I think that's why our stories, whoever we are, you know, are the most powerful forces we have because they connect at a human level. They show the wide variety of circumstance and people involved. But here's here's what is not happening as far as I can see to the extent that I wander around on campus and look at textbooks and so on. And that is that when we talk about democracy, we don't start out by talking about the power to make decisions over our own physical selves. And this concerns mm-hmm. men too. You know, there have been cases of men being threatened with or forcibly sterilized, for instance, as a form of punishment. So, you know, we can unify on this, even though it probably happens more often to women. Yeah. And the way that you're reframing this story brings me actually to you, Renee, right? If we flash forward to this moment, you've worked with thousands and thousands of people around the world who share their abortion stories. I mean, I got to ask, how did you wind up becoming known as the Beyonce of abortion storytelling? Like, that is quite a title. Well, thank you. Um, A friend bestowed it on me. It was actually shortly after uh, Coachella. And there was a tweet. I don't know if you remember, but someone said, whatever you do, be the Beyonce of what you do. And so someone Mm. said, oh, you're the Beyonce of abortion storytelling because you think about like the way in which Beyonce uses her art to shift the conversation, to get people to think differently about Black folks, Black women, Black bodies. How do you use the talents that you have to get people to think differently about your people, right? And so my people, obviously as a Black woman, are other Black women, but our queer and trans people, like, right? They're like folks of color, Mm -hmm. but particularly my people are people who have abortions. And we are people who, there are a lot of stories told about us There's a lot of myths, um, a lot of really nasty Mm. stereotypes about us that are not true. And so we are taking our voice and saying, actually, this is on our own terms, right? Because I think there is a lot of ways in which people try to defend abortion access by stigmatizing us and saying it's only 3% Mm. of services or nobody really wants an abortion or well, you don't want to have too many or people regret their abortions or it's a hard decision, all of those things. Actually, all of those messages are born out of anti-abortion stigma or things that are made up by the Mm. anti-abortion movement. And so we are claiming our own power, reclaiming our stories, talking about them. And actually to pay homage to the Ms. Magazine spread, we thought about what would it look like to do something similar and make our voices heard at the Supreme Court. So we did an amicus brief with our abortion stories and had people who've had abortions sign on to say, no, we had abortions, this impacts our lives. And we only had it out there for a week. We weren't even sure how many people would sign on. And it turned out to be 6,641 people saying, we had abortions, we will be heard. And this Supreme Court, if you're gonna overturn Roe v. Wade, Look at us in our eyes as you do it. You have to read every single one of our names. Listening to you, it gives me hope because it makes clear to me how contagious stories are. 
because this started when we at Ms. Magazine, all that time ago, before you were born, <laughs> listened to the stories collected by Simone de Beauvoir, you know, the signed petition that they did, and we did our signed petition. So it's the contagion of action. It's the contagion of telling the truth. Absolutely. And honestly, that is how I got into this work, right? Because someone shared their abortion story with me and I was like, wow, I'm not alone. And I had my abortion. Mm. The only people I knew of who had abortions were one of my cousins and the rapper Lil' Kim. I swear I didn't know, aside from Lil' Kim, I didn't know any Black folks who had abortions. But at the rally, I got to give flowers to my mother who didn't tell me until I'd been doing this work for four years that she'd had an abortion before me and her abortion made my life possible. Did she tell you why she decided to finally share that and sign on to this brief alongside you and all of these other people? Yeah, I mean, I had asked a couple of times in the past, but she was kind of like, well, I don't need to talk about it. That's something you do. And, mm. you know, didn't really want to talk about it that much. It was just, she was like, I don't even think about it, right? She said, I didn't really think about it until you started doing this work. But when I finally asked her again, she said, well, I'm so sick of this shit. <laughs> just kind of, my mom does not cuss. And she was just like, I'm so sick of it, you know? And she was also like, at this point, what is anybody going to say to me? There's nothing you can mm. say to me that's going to hurt me for the decision that I made because I also have, you know, three children, two by birth and one by adoption. And this is how my family's created and I'm unapologetic about it. And it was really beautiful as I was working through the names oh. to put in the amicus brief. I was going through all 6,641 names and to see mm. not only mine and my mother's, but also my cousins, my aunt's. Just mm. so many people in my family and just this reminder that our families are made by abortion. It's wonderful that you personalize and universalize at the same time, because I think that's exactly what this issue does for us. Absolutely. But it's also a source of humor. Flo Kennedy, my old speaking partner, always said that if, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say one thing I do want to push is that, um, and what was beautiful about the rally is that we did have trans men sharing their abortion stories. Mm. And I mm -hmm. think we are pushing this conversation in which we're having a larger conversation about gender and, and gender expansiveness and who has abortions. But also I have been happy to see more cisgender men actually saying, yeah, my life is made possible by abortion too. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking back at the letter in 1972 right now, Gloria, and you wrote, to many American women and men, it seems absurd in this allegedly enlightened age that we should still be arguing for a simple principle that a woman has the right to sovereignty over their own body. And I really had to like wipe my eyes and make sure I was reading it correctly because you could have written that right now. As you say that, I'm thinking about myself before <laughs> when I wrote that <laughs> and realizing I should have known. Mm. However, I was not taught this in any of my college, school, or high school courses, I should have known that the beginning of patriarchy, uh, which was not that long ago in this country, it depends on which part of the world you are, was the source of these restrictions, that they had not mm -hmm. existed before. 
So this is is not a new struggle. It's a struggle against a backlash against an old human right. Mm. So perhaps it's that we're still here because um, the backlash to the freedoms that we want is 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 always promised. It will keep coming back. Well, and, and we still have back. a patriarchal racist right kind of outlook heteronormative yeah i mean in theory we're a democracy um and we've moved toward it but we're not there yet well and i would say the reason we haven't conquered is because we haven't conquered white supremacy right Mm. i'm working on a book with a colleague of mine regina mahone and it's called countering abortion explaining and it's all about people of color's experiences with abortion and if you actually look at the ebbs and flows of abortion restrictions in history they actually tie right with Black liberation throughout history, right? The first restrictions Mm. came in the 1860s. Well, guess what was happening in the 1860s? Black folks were getting free. And it was to push Mm. Black midwives out of the labor sector, right? And to put American gynecology, white men on the map. And so then, of course, criminalization was happening. A lot of raids happened in the 1920s and 30s. And then, of course, in the 50s, 60s. And then again, once abortion was legalized, right, the anti-abortion movement, they had been organizing around segregation and they could no longer do that. And they needed to pick another issue. Right. And so what they wanted to be able to do was go along those same Jim Crow lines and push back against the changing gender norms of the feminist movements. Um, (laughs) You remember, right. But also, of course, against the civil rights movement. And as Black people were being able to be more liberated, have more freedom within society. Because here's the thing, we've always had in this nation and around the world, subjugation of Black and Brown people's fertility. It it was all of a sudden, right, once it was no longer for profit, then it became a Mm. problem. And and once again, I think we learned that from stories. I mean, I learned it, I don't know, half a century ago from Fannie Lou Hamer. Right, exactly. Who um, was encouraged to have children, even if she didn't want them, because they were underpaid field hands. And right. once there were mechanized ways of, of doing that field work, and she went into the hospital for something else entirely, I think an appendicitis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was yeah. sterilized without her knowledge. Right. So, you know, it's controlling the means of reproduction in whatever direction it goes. And that happens to be us. That was the first part of Brittany's conversation with Gloria Steinem and Renee Bracey Sherman. Coming up, They talk about the cost of excluding women of color from the abortion rights movement and where we go from here, right after this short break. Our sponsor, Schomburg, cares about championing underrepresented groups and creating a more inclusive world. They're partnering with us on the Undistracted Spotlight to amplify the brands of BIPOC women and gender nonconforming entrepreneurs. For today's episode, we want to shout out Valerie Madison, owner, designer, and creative director of Valerie Madison Fine Jewelry. For Valerie, hearing people tell her no, like, no, you can't sell your jewelry in my store, or no, you can't have a stand at our craft festival, only made her find better paths to achieving her dream. When COVID came along, it seemed like the biggest no of all time. 
but with her dedicated team, she was able to make it through, and she even opened her own storefront in Seattle last fall. To learn more about Valerie and her environmentally conscious jewelry, visit www.valeriemadison.com. The Undistracted Spotlight is brought to you by our sponsor, Chambord Liquor. And we're back. Here's more of Brittany's powerful conversation with Gloria Steinem and Renee Bracey Sherman. This is really getting into the meat of what I wanted to talk about because we are really connecting the dots on how anti-Blackness led to this anti-abortion movement. But I also want to talk a little bit about what life has been inside the movement, right? Because now we get into this intersectionality conversation and that's where I'm like, let's dig in, okay? Because, you know, Renee, historically, we have seen the pro-choice movement, however you want to characterize it, historically and in some ways currently fail to fully include women of color. What has been the cost of excluding Black and brown women from so many of these spaces? There's so much of a cost. We can just talk about the brilliance that we lose in this movement because folks are pushed out because we simply are unwilling to put up with the racist microaggressions within our movement. But that's on on a more granular scale, right? But then that ends up looking like huge mishaps when it comes to policy shift. In her book, uh, Life on the Line, Faye Waddleton, uh, she was the first Black president of Planned Parenthood, She talked about how as soon as they put through the Hyde Amendment, she wanted to fight it. But a lot of the leaders, mostly white at Planned Parenthood, pushed back and said no. So we lost Roe back when we didn't make sure that everyone had access to abortion at any time and for any reason, particularly Black and brown folks, particularly young people. And I I think that then means that we're not actually making sure people have access to the healthcare that they need that that really fits the circumstances of their lives. It also means that reproductive justice as a movement, right, the movement to ensure that everybody has the ability to decide if, when, and how they grow their family and also raise their family free from state-sanctioned violence and oppression, yeah. that's been around for 25 years. But It's only sort of now becoming more mainstream. And honestly, I think it's really frustrating to see some of it being watered down as just like, oh, it's just the Mm. term. It's not actually looking at what does it mean to if somebody's a pro-choice champion, but then doesn't do anything to expand WIC benefits or SNAP Mm -hmm. benefits, right? right? What does it mean for somebody to say that they support abortion access, but aren't making sure that the ICE detention centers aren't sterilizing folks, that Mm. they're okay with folks being in cages to begin with. It needs to be a larger conversation. And I've definitely had many conversations with some of my colleagues, particularly white women in the pro-choice movement who are like, well, when we talk about stuff like that, that's that's mission creep or that's that's something else. That's not what we're working on. I'm confused as to Mm. how you can say that you're going to argue to make sure that somebody has access to abortion, but not make sure that they got diapers for the kids that they're raising. I'm confused as to how you can sit here and say that you're making sure somebody has access to an abortion, but 
you're not going to do anything about the fact that, you know, they smoke a little weed and then they get thrown in jail because they're pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. As Professor Michelle Goodwin talks about in her book, Policing the Womb, when the pro-choice movement failed to stand up for Black folks during the so-called crack baby epidemic and they were throwing Black mamas in jail, that was a personhood Mm. issue, right? That was a reproductive issue. That was making sure people were able to not be thrown in jail simply for, you know, the the consequences of being pregnant, right? But when the movement failed to show up for that, that again was when we should have had the conversation about personhood and we did not. And so again, we now have a way in which we have a system that criminalizes black and brown people. And so mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I know like white women love to opine about, oh my God, we're getting to the handmaid's tale and all this stuff. Well guess what? Mm-hmm. Black and brown folks have been uh, prosecuted for their pregnancies for a long time. There are folks sitting in jail right now on suspicion of miscarriage or for using drugs while pregnant. And so you can't have a one track mind. And so when black and brown folks weren't given space in leadership, were pushed out of our movement, that is what we lost. And so that is how we end up with tons of pregnant folks in jail, families separated because it's considered well, a separate and issue. We also lose the majority of the movement. Because, Absolutely. You know, because Sorry. in fact, I mean, from from 1970 forward, I think 1970 was the first time that there was ever a serious national poll about the women's liberation movement and its goals and so on and so on. It's been something like 70-some percent supported by women of color and only 50-some percent by white women. Right. So, yeah. you know, that that makes no sense. I mean, if we're in a democracy, that should mean that most of the leadership is elected by women of color. Right. And not just giving us the reins to take over as things are falling apart, which is sort of what's happening right now. Come save us. Yeah. And I feel I have to be honest. That's interesting. So tell me what makes you feel, I mean, in your heart that things yeah. are falling apart. Well, I think what's feeling frustrating um, there was there was a lot of work that a lot of folks of color put into the rally that we had and to change the narrative, right? And I wonder what mm. it would look like if organizations like mine and the Black and Brown leaders had been funded at the level that white-led organizations are funded at 10 years ago, mm. right? Like my organization is only like $300,000. Meanwhile, there are other organizations that are 20, 30, 45, $450 million organizations. Like we only get pulled in at the very end. The movement would look so different Mm. if we were actually given the tools because you could put me on TV as much as you want, but if you don't actually give me a budget to be able to organize, it's Mm. actually just tokenizing. And that is, I think, what has happened. We should have a a separate discussion on on fundraising, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's a mess. But right. I, I would like to say what's what's hard is that, you know, as you were saying, like in the women's liberation movement, like there were women of color. But I think what's what's challenging, and we even see this today, when I go look at photos that folks take of the rallies, there are tons of people of color. But if a journalist only takes a photo of a white woman in a handmaid's mm-hmm. outfit or of white people, it erases us from being there. And so one Uh of the projects that we have done in my organization, we testify, is actually to give media outlets photos of black and brown folks who have abortions Uh so that we are not erased from this work because we need to be able to document that we were there 
and you will not tell us that we weren't. Uh And I think that is one of the things that feels very, very challenging when I look at. Well, that's very important. I'm very glad that you're doing that because this has been a problem with mainstream media, at least from the beginning. The very first march that I'm aware of anyway, was down Fifth Avenue in 1970, I think. And the next day, the New York Times published a piece saying, oh, it, it looked like the country and emphasizing how diverse it was and how, you know, and the, a few days after that, both Time and Newsweek put only white women on the cover. Right. And of course, the journalists are writing the first draft of history, right? So if they don't get it then, right then, it's a lot more difficult to get it right later on. And I, and I want to come at this question a slightly different way, Gloria, with you, because you are a white woman and you've been doing the work around reproductive freedom for a long time. While we know these same conversations that we're having now, that Renee is having now, these same pleas that Renee is making now have been being made for a long time. So really the question is, what is the responsibility of white cisgender women in leveraging what privilege there is, right? We know that one of them is fundraising, right? What else is is the work for white women to do? Well, at the simplest level, I would say when you have a meeting about a particular issue or when you're starting a group to address something, make sure that the group that's meeting looks like the group that is affected. And just Mm -hmm. don't do anything until the group is more generally representative. People will say, in my experience, people will say, well, you know, we'll start and then we'll, you know, diversify later. And I always say, no, you can't do that. (laughs) I mean, because the people who start something own it in a certain way. Mm. So you, you have to wait until the group looks like the country or the group you're serving. Right. Like yeah, if you didn't put I, butter in the pie crust to begin with, you can't just add it on top. It mm, has to be baked mm, in. Mm. It's just that simple. And I think mm-hmm. it, it says everything about your intentions. Again, one of the things that felt really important to me when, when I started We Testify, um, we have ninety over 90 storytellers that we work with, 90% of whom are Black and Brown folks because the majority of people who have abortions are people of color. We have a number of whom are queer and trans. And that's from the beginning. So here we are in this moment that feels dismal for so many people. Renee, you are right to remind us that it has been dismal for a lot of people for a long time. And the stakes are incredibly high. And this is a question really for you both. Do you ever think, Gloria, and then Renee, about what direction your life would have gone in if you were not able to access an abortion? I do. It's hard for me to imagine. Oh, I'm so sorry. Can I can I just pause for a second, Renee? How 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 are you doing? I'm okay. Go ahead, Gloria. I don't. I I think tears come first. I so wish I could give you a hug. Right. right. <laughs> I wish I could give you a hug. Um, it's been really hard. I feel like as a leader in this movement, I like we have to like be stoic all the time and. Mm. I've been having a really hard time the last couple of days because I just, I I mean, I'm in my home and I just look around at everything in my life, all my friends, everything, and what I would not have if I was not able to get the abortion. And I mean, 
according to the turnaway study, I would have, you know, grown to love the child that I had, but like, that's not the life that I wanted. And I think what feels really painful is that I do work with some storytellers who've had abortions, but also were unable to get abortions. And not only, you know, obviously they love their children, but like they also talk about how difficult their pregnancies were. The anti-abortion movement is kind of like, well, you just have a kid. They don't talk about is that, you know, people have postpartum depression, like pregnancy can be, it shifts literal bones and and organs in your body, right? And so to have to be forced to go through that is really, really difficult. And then, of course, this nation mm. won't bother to give us paid leave, won't bother to do anything. And so I just, I'm I'm just, I'm so thankful that I was able to have my abortion and my heart all the time just breaks knowing that, you know, there are people who are becoming pregnant right now, not knowing, right? And, and not knowing if they're going to be able to access care. I've supported people who are self-managed their abortions because they they are like, I need access. Mm. It's just truly, truly scary that this is something I think people are taking for granted. I had somebody text me today and say, well, do you think they're really going to overturn it? And I was like, yes, yes, this mm. is real. This is very oh. scary. And I, my heart just feels for those people who I get messages, you know, in my email or on our website of just, they're like, I'm scared, I'm pregnant, I don't know what to do. And I want everyone to know that they're, you know, you can self-manage your abortion safely with medication abortion. Um, I've been on the hotlines. I drive people to their appointments here in DC, uh, particularly if they need later abortions. I used to work at the National Network of Abortion Funds and, and volunteer with abortion funds. So I've I've been on those phone calls when people are like, I'm not sure what to do. I don't have the money. I can't travel. I don't know, right? I've heard that desperation. I've sat with people, held their hands through their abortions when they finally feel that relief of, I didn't think I was going to be able to get it. And so just like, you know, thinking about that, like in 2022, it's not just like, oh, when this is happening, like, they can come yeah. back with their decision at any point. And that is absolutely terrifying. I hope and pray that that's, that that's not the case. But I just know that I would not be who I am if I had to be 19-year-old Renee, who had to continue that pregnancy with somebody who was punching the wall next to her head. Mm. And just that's just not. And, and I'll also, I don't talk about this very much, but... I drank a lot at, right before my abortion in hopes that it would cause a miscarriage because I, I was 19. I didn't know anything. And so what I was thinking about when you were asking that question and why I started to cry was just like, I think about how scared 19-year-old Renee was and that, yeah. you know, nothing would have stopped me. And I'm glad that I had access and that I'm glad that we have safe, self-managed access now, but not everybody knows about it. And that's what, what terrifies me. So sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Ms. Bynum. No, first of all, you don't owe anybody an apology. No. I want to thank you for the gift of your honesty. Yes. Absolutely. And you have to say, Gloria, you can't call me. (laughs) You know, I'm always told, talk to your elders. (laughs) She did the same thing first time I met her. I I get it. Trust me. It's the Midwest enough. (laughs) Right. You can't help it. (sighs) 
Yeah, I mean, I think that without letting up any pressure on keeping the laws as just as they should be and the procedures as economically available as as they should be, with uh, all that goes without saying. But at the other end of that is the clear determination with each other and our own strength that we are going to support each other in doing whatever we fucking well have to do (laughs) to achieve Mm -hmm. reproductive choice and freedom for each one of us. So I just worry that sometimes we get too much attention focused on things we can't control. And yes, we have to do that because only, as you point out, by massive organizing in the street, as I'm so grateful for you <laughs> for doing, do, do we have an in- influence on that. But that there are also things that we can do as individuals. Uh, encouraging notes we can put up on the bulletin board at school or work, discussion groups we can introduce this into, demystifying the whole process, just as uh, where we started out, saying that we have had an abortion. So just interweaving it wherever we are, and in a, a big political sense, saying there is no democracy unless all of us, women as well as men, have decision-making power over our own bodies. Mm. Gloria, you've given us some important, critical, provocative next steps. Renee, you have any thoughts to close us out? Yeah, I would just say to everyone listening, think about how far you would go and what you would do to make sure that someone you love has access to an abortion and, and do those things, right? And that can be as simple as telling them that you love them and showing up and talking about your values. Um, for those of you who've had abortions, you know, when you feel ready, share your stories, but also give up your time and energy to local abortion funds. Go to keepourclinics.org to show up for the independent abortion providers and the clinics. Like we need everybody to show up and show out because, you know, without abortion funds, without clinics, like folks can't travel. There's no clinics for them to go to. And then of course, like, Give high fives and kudos to your champions, your political champions who are doing the right thing, like in my home state of Illinois, where they now they changed the law. Right. They got rid of the parental notification and they have Medicaid coverage of abortion. So there are really great things that can happen on the local county state level. But that means that folks have to take this seriously and get involved and just remember that, you know, everyone uh-huh. someone who's had an abortion. And and I would say that, too, that sometimes we forget to state this right from another point of view, which is that everyone has the right to be born, loved, and wanted. Mm, everyone. That is the perfect place to close. And I just want to say thank you from the deepest part of me to the both of you, because you are holding power for people who are not ready yet to share their stories. And I just have the deepest gratitude for you both, for this conversation and for who you are in the world. Oh, Brittany, Renee, I think I can speak for you, right? We we are grateful to her, right? Yeah, thank you for bringing us together. And, you know, it's an honor to, because I've, I've never been in conversation with Gloria. And so, you know. I'm and I'm with you. I mean, this is great, right? It is. Thank you both so much. 
That was Brittany's conversation with feminist icon Gloria Steinem and reproductive justice activist Renee Bracey Sherman. You can learn more about both their work at wearethemeteor.com and follow Renee's organization by going to wetestify.org. That's it for today, but as Brittany says, never for tomorrow. Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Matlow. Our associate producer is Alexis Moore. Thanks also to Treasure Brooks, Grace Chen, and Hannes Brown. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Brittany Packnett Cunningham and Cindy Levy. And our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow Brittany at Miss Pacchetti on all social media and our team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. I'm Rebecca Carroll. Stay undistracted. Undistracted.